So today's show might as well be called the Bernie and Biden show because there's like endless stories about Bernie and Biden. Um, I have so many videos for you, but I'm actually not going to start with Bernie and Biden. I'm going to start with Donald Trump. While I was away, there was a hilarious story that even I couldn't resist, even though it's like a nothing story. Um, We also have new numbers on Trump's presidency and how popular he is. We have Nancy Pelosi versus the Justice Democrats. It's heating up and it's becoming very public, which actually you could argue is probably a good thing. Because I think that many of the Justice Democrats to this point were a little naive and they thought like they could somehow, you know, make Nancy Pelosi do the right thing and uh, not be objectively terrible. But they failed on that front. So... Now the claws are coming out, and um, I'll tell you the specifics of that in a little bit. And then, uh, yeah, later on, Congressman Justin Amash leaves the Republican Party, and we have Andrew Yang comments on Israel, and woof, it is not ideal, to say the least. (laughs) Okay, so, without further ado, let's get started, and um, we have Trump and his brain taking a dump in front of everybody. So this may be Trump's best brain fart yet. Um, And actually, you know what? You can't even call this a brain fart. This is like a brain dump. He held a 4th of July event at the Lincoln Memorial, and um, it was raining a lot of the day, and then I guess they pushed it back quite a bit, but he ended up doing the event. And when he was talking about the Revolutionary War, he said this. 
in June of 1775, the Continental Congress created a unified army out of the revolutionary forces encamped around Boston and New York and named after the great George Washington Commander-in-Chief. The Continental Army suffered a bitter winter of Valley Forge, found glory across the waters of the Delaware, and seized victory from Cornwallis of Yorktown. Our Army manned the airport. It ran the ramparts. It took over the airports. It did everything it had to do. respond to that I have no idea how to respond to that uh, if you notice before he even says they took over the airports they did everything they had to do it almost seems like he said airports before that as well he said man he kind of like trailed off into nothingness but if you go back and you listen right before he says the thing about they took over the airports and did everything they had to do he says they manned the hammer. Like he kind of looks like he stumbled across something and then his brain like temporarily shut down and then it flashed back on. But instead of functioning properly, he just filled in the gaps with whatever silliness was floating around his rotting brain. And he was like, they took over the airports. They did everything they had to do. Airports in the 1700s. Okay. Okay. That's what we're talking about now. The most hilarious part about this is, after the fact, you know, it was brought to, brought to his attention. Hey, dude, you just said there were airports in the, you know, Revolutionary War. What? <laughs> what? Like, what's even your theoretical dodge for bringing that up? Like, what, what happened? How did you say something so ridiculous? And he says, oh, the teleprompter messed up. Now, I'm not sure he means, like, I think the way everybody's interpreting it and what it might mean is, like, the teleprompter went out or whatever, and then he just, like, filled in the blanks with, you know, the side comments that he does when he gives speeches. Um, that very well could be what he means. But, I mean, I guess maybe he could be trying to say that it said that in the teleprompter, but that I find inconceivable because it would have to clear his own people, and there's no way his own people would miss such a giant mistake like that when you write it down on paper. So, I mean, I guess what he means is the teleprompter went out for a second or whatever, or it was lagging behind him as he was giving the speech, and then he just kind of filled in the blanks. Oh, they took over the airports. They did everything they had to do. You know that he was filling the blanks there, at least I think he is, because he said they did everything they had to do. <laughs> Which is such a Trumpism. That's, they, that wasn't written down in the speech. Like, they did everything they had to do. It was mighty tremendous. It was unbelievable. I have to tell you, believe me. <laughs> like, that wasn't written down. But, um, yeah, that's embarrassing. And it also, I mean, hilarious because Donald Trump repeatedly went after um, President Obama for what? Using a teleprompter. Like, the whole thing was like, why is Barack Obama always relying on uh, teleprompters? Huh? Huh? And then now Trump's giving a speech and he's president and uh, the teleprompter slows up for like 0.2 seconds and he starts talking about Revolutionary War airports. <laughs> oh, what a goofball. And 
and by the way, uh, there, the serious story that comes out of um, this event is that Trump used taxpayer funds to shoot scenes that he's going to use in campaign ads. You can't do that. You can't do that. You can't use, like, taxpayer money for something like that. That's That has to come out of your actual campaign funds. You can't use tax funds for that. But a lot of this event was set up with tax dollars. And then it, there were scenes that were shot that Trump's going to use in re-election ads and stuff. And that's, you know, that's ridiculous. That's the kind of stuff that's just fueled completely by his narcissism and his self-aggrandizement. And he doesn't care about, you know, little rules like don't use taxpayer money to blow yourself. <laughs> he doesn't care about that. He said, fuck it. We'll, we'll do it anyway. It doesn't matter. What are they going to do? Are they going to make me stop? You want to give me a court injunction? By all means, go right ahead. But that's going to happen after I already shoot the scenes that I want to shoot. So fuck off. Really, you know, tyrannical authoritarian impulse. Like, I'll just do it. I don't give a fuck. I'll just do it, and then I don't care what you say. And if you try to stop me, too late. I already did it. Oh, boy. But there you go. This reminds me now of all the times that Trump brags about his brain. <laughs> Have you seen those clips? They're so great. He's... He said in speeches time and time again, like, they respect uh, Donald Trump's very large a brain. We need, uh, you know, we need folks, we need this. We need brain, okay? We need brain. <laughs> there are other meanings for that, which uh, I'm pretty sure Trump is unaware of. But nonetheless, um, usually if you have to brag about something like that, it's because you're uh, massively insecure about it. So that's perhaps unsurprising, but... Donald Trump's brain took a dump in front of all of us at his 4th of July event. Okay, next. Where we going, bitch? All right, all right Trump's approval rating. Uh-oh, yikes. So every time we do one of these stories, it's, it's feast or famine. It is, you know, Donald Trump's approval rating hits a record high, or it's, you know, Donald Trump's approval rating compared to other presidents at this point in his presidency is historically low. Um, I feel like those are the only two stories we've ever seen with Trump's poll numbers. I've, we've never seen just like a, you know, his approval rating is hovering in, you know, an average area. It's never that. It's either like, oh, he's doing well, or he's fucking the worst ever, and, you know, even Jimmy Carter is more popular than him. Um, so this one's a little shock to the system because of everything that's been going on, but take a look. President Trump's approval rating has surged to the highest level of his presidency. Here we go again, according to a new Washington Post-ABC News poll. The survey, which was released Sunday, found that 47% of registered voters approve of the job Trump is doing in the White House, a figure that represents a five-point increase from April. 50% of registered voters disapprove of Trump's performance as president, however. Um, meanwhile, 44% of voting-age Americans said they approve of Trump's job performance, while 53% said they disapprove of it. Just 39% of voting-age Americans said they approve of Trump's job performance in April. Okay, so that's interesting because you get like um, a decline the further you go into the poll numbers. 44% of voting age Americans approve, 
and then it drops all the way to 39% when you get to, um, wait, that makes no sense. Voting, voting age Americans said they approved. Let me read this one more time. 44% of voting age Americans said they approve of Trump's job performance, while 53% said they disapprove of it. Just 39% of voting age Americans said they approve of Trump's job's performance in April. Oh, okay. So um, you get an increase from April, but you do get a decrease in the overall number when you go from registered voters to voting age Americans. So, in other words, it's registered voters versus, like, all Americans who are over voting age. So, 47% of registered voters, 44% of um, voting age Americans. So, what that fact means, very simply, is you cannot take the 2020 election for granted. Because if his approval rating right now is 47% with registered voters, that means we still got a race on our hands. And listen, we can speculate as to why it is the numbers are, you know, looking better for Trump than many people expected. And, you know, my guess would be oftentimes the resistance is terrible and they're not resisting substantively. If you resist this president substantively, I think you can make his numbers tank. Um, You know, the standard economic indicators that mainstream media uses are doing well at the moment. So, you know, they talk all the time and Trump brags all the time about low unemployment, stock market record high. Now, again, those are really not the best economic indicators and people are struggling out there and wages haven't budged since the 1980s. And, um, you know, we have a lot of problems, including, what is it, 7 million more people lost their health insurance under Trump. So there's a lot of negative stuff out there, but... um, there's no doubt that he brags about the things he can brag about and mainstream media focuses on those things specifically about, you know, there's talk in the Democratic Party. How can we even run against Trump's economy? Because it's that good. Oh, God. (laughs) How little do these people know about politics? It's disgusting and it's disastrous. But you have that. And then also maybe Maybe the North Korea thing affected it. I don't know if this poll was taken just before that. It could be just before that, or it could be after it. But, you know, Donald Trump became the first U.S. president to step foot in North Korea. But putting that aside, you know, it's just more about, oh, there's a little bit of hope for peace. But at the same time, they're escalating with Iran. But he did pull back at the last minute, and maybe people are giving him credit for pulling back at the last minute compared to Bolton and Pompeo and all these neocon bloodthirsty maniacs who are trying to get us into a war ASAP, a new war ASAP. So I don't know. It's tough to determine why it is that these numbers are what they are, but nonetheless, here we go. Here we go again. So you cannot take 2020 for granted, and you need to run somebody who's populist left, or Donald Trump really has a chance of winning re-election. And it's scary because Biden... You know, I predicted he he was going to tank, and the numbers show he's definitely trending downwards. Um, But if he somehow magically holds on and gets the nomination, we are in serious trouble. Because as you'll see later on in today's show, I got um, videos for you of Joe Biden basically giving the worst possible answers to questions he was given by CNN and showing he's going to be Hillary, the 2020 version of Hillary. So it cannot be Biden. And we cannot take him for granted. 
because a lot of Democrats who are very centrist um, think that they have a layup election and they'll be surprised when Trump actually hang in, hangs in there. So do not underestimate in 2020. This election is incredibly important, and it's certainly not a given, and the numbers are reflecting that. Okay. All right, Pelosi versus Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It's happening, y'all. It is definitely happening. So Nancy Pelosi took some pot shots at the Justice Democrats in Congress because they're refusing to fall in line and capitulate to Trump and the GOP. So here's what she said. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, and Rashida Tlaib, quote, have their public whatever and their Twitter world, but they didn't have any following. They're four people, and that's how many votes they got. Damn. So what they're referring to is a piece of legislation where Nancy Pelosi got um, Mike Pence's word on some policies involving immigration. And, you know, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar and all the Justice Democrats were like, you're going to take Mike Pence's word on the issue of immigration. No. You know, let's get some tangible policies up front. Yeah, take his word. What are you, crazy? You must be insane. So they, they did not fall in line with the Democratic caucus. And that's the correct thing to do. So Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez sees this glowing New York Times profile of Nancy Pelosi, because that's what it was. And in that profile, Nancy Pelosi takes shots at the Justice Democrats. And here's what Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says in response to that. That public whatever is called public sentiment, and wielding the power to shift it is how we actually achieve meaningful change in this country. She continues, I find it strange when members act as though social media isn't important. They set millions of dollars on fire to run TV ads so people can see their message. I haven't dialed for dollars once this year and have more time to do my actual job, yet we'd rather campaign like it's 2008. Burn. (laughs) Burn, son. So Nancy Pelosi, I mean, obviously she's substantively wrong, but apart from being substantively wrong, she's strategically dumb here because the reason why the Justice Democrats were even elected in the first place is because there's this perception of the old guard in the Democratic Party, the elites, the establishment, that they're corrupt and they're out of touch and they're backroom wheelers and dealers and they're protecting the status quo. And then they go on to prove it. Nancy Pelosi goes on to prove it in no uncertain terms. So, and then you're taking shots at the people who are right. Let me tell you how this comes across, Nancy. This comes across as the Morse code system taking shots at the telephone. And you're bitter and you're out of touch and you're barely hanging on to power and you're wheeling and dealing and cutting backroom deals with monsters. And when people 
show up who actually want to fight, you sneer at them. Nancy Pelosi fights against the left flank of her own party way more ferociously than she ever fought against the right. So in this new day and age of politics, she's useless. She's useless. Useless. Everybody, oh, she's a, on mainstream media, they think she's like a, a fire-breathing lefty. <laughs> she's, she's um, you know, the Democratic leader, and she's not even for Medicare for all, something that over 70%, in some polls, over 80% of her own party wants. In the country, some polls, it's over 70% of the entire country wants Medicare for all. She's the leader of the Democrats, and she's not even for Medicare for all. Her great legislative accomplishment is what? Getting a Republican health care bill passed, Obamacare with the individual mandate system, getting that passed and getting no Republican votes in the process? That's her fucking legislative accomplishment? We had a supermajority, and she couldn't even get a public option in the bill? Her and Obama and Schumer? And now you want to step to the younger generation of actual fire breathers who are fighting for the people and, and mock them and heap scorn on them. Why? Because they're actually popular? See, that's the thing. She's going after them for like, oh, yeah, sure, you have your like public profile and you're like famous and whatnot, but whatever. I mean, forget all that. I'm, you know, I'm the one with the actual power. All you have is four votes. Except here's the thing, Nancy. In, in the real world, the more people you have in politics, the more power you have. So you're going after Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and guess what? She's got an army of people who agree with her. You do not have an army of people that agree with you. You have an army of people who tolerate you and who go, ugh, here we go again, a half capitulation to the right every fucking time you make a shitty deal. The reason why, have you ever stopped to think, well, wait a second, why is it that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ro Khanna, Ilhan Omar, and so many of the Justice Democrats, why is it that they, uh, many of them just got into Congress and they have a higher public profile than people who've been in Congress for decades? Why is that? Why do you think that is, Nancy? Maybe it's because they actually are fighting on the issues that the American people care about, and they're willing to take no shit in the process. They ain't there to make friends, Nancy. They're not there to be part of the club. They're not there to, you know, hold the, the peasant hordes at bay. They're there to represent people, unlike you. Unlike you. So thank you for proving our point about you, Nancy Pelosi. Um, you're out of touch, you're corrupt, you're elitist, and you're more than willing to cut deals with far-right-wing monsters and take their word for shit than you are to work with your own left flank and get the policies implemented that your base wants implemented. Listen, strategically and substantively, she's a dinosaur and she needs to step aside. I want to see a Pramila Jayapal Speaker of the House or a Ro Khanna Speaker of the House. We can't, we can't deal with this nonsense anymore. She's acting like it's the 1980s or the 1990s, and Democrats need to triangulate away absolutely everything. Well, have you ever considered, Nancy, that maybe that's why your approval rating is less than 30%? That burns, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it does. So the reason why they're popular, the Justice Democrats, is because they actually represent the people and they're uncorrupted. Two things that are the opposite of you. 
by the way, I told them. I told the Justice Democrats. Nancy Pelosi is not your friend. Get it through your head. She's not your friend. She's going to work against you, and she's going to do it all the time on all of our major issues. And now, uh, you know, it's a little late, but they're catching on. They're catching on. So, I, you know, you could have acted right from day one, but they didn't. But now they're learning. And now they realize that they have just as big of a fight with the corporate Democrats as they have with the Republicans. And that's saying something. Okay, here we go. We're entering the Bernie and Biden block of the show, which is endless, 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 endless. Bernie opens a can of whoop-ass on Trump. Here we go. So Bernie Sanders uh, really opened a can of whoop-ass on Donald Trump on Twitter. So here's what Trump said. Last year was the first in 51 years where prescription drug prices actually went down. But things have been and are being put in place that will drive them down substantially. If Democrats would work with us in a bipartisan fashion, we would get big results very fast. All right, so you should already be skeptical. Why? Because Alex Azar, who was the former head of, I think it was Eli Lilly or one of these big pharmaceutical companies, who is a proven price gouger, Alex Azar is. He's the head of, what is it, Health and Human Services? He's the head of one of the government agencies where his job is to reduce drug prices. So do you understand how ridiculous that is? A guy who is a price gouger, who is the head of a pharmaceutical company, is in charge of lowering prices. It's almost like he won't do that. It's almost like he was put there to protect the profits of, the, uh, of big pharma and even the health insurance industry. So when Trump says some shit like that, you should immediately be skeptical. Why? Because that's it's likely not true. So here comes Bernie Sanders to lay the smack down. Here's what he says. That's a lie. There were 96 price increases for every cut during 2018. Drug prices increased 10.5% in the last six months. The price of 104 drugs rose by 13.1% on average last week. When we win, we won't wait for drug companies to end their greed. We will end it for them. Damn, dog. (laughs) Oh, shit. Oh, my goodness. That reminds me of um, the movie Tombstone, where he says, he's going to sit there and bleed. (laughs) That's what Bernie just did to Donald Trump. He roughed him up, and then he goes, he's going to sit there and bleed. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Now, listen, you shouldn't be surprised by First of all, Bernie's dropping facts left and right, of course, because he's Bernie. But you shouldn't be surprised by the fact that Trump is lying here, because... You know what his plan was to lower drug prices? And I'm not joking about this. He literally asked the pharmaceutical companies to lower prices. <laughs> uh, so they may have, 
Like maybe they did a few token, you know, uh, you know, medicines. They were like, yeah, okay, we'll drop the price of that, and we'll drop the price of that, and then that gives Trump enough to go out there and make a bullshit argument of like, see, we've done it, success. I have two <laughs> bottles of pills that have gone down. Tremendous. Um, but what a ridiculous, like, that's his philosophy. Like, I'll just ask him, and it'll work. You're going to keep the greed of giant mega corporations at bay by saying please and thank you? That's, that's your plan. Ridiculous, utterly ridiculous, but that's Trump 101. By the way, all it took was one meeting with uh, big pharma lobbyists for Trump to change his position on Medicare negotiating for better drug prices. Not joking. One meeting with pharma lobbyists, and he was convinced. And the thing is, this is how stupid Trump is. I don't even think it was like a, necessarily the corruption that made him change his mind. I think that the lobbyists just presented a bullshit argument that convinced Trump. And he's like, oh, yeah, tremendous. No, we have to stop. We, no way we can negotiate for better drug prices. This would be sad. Wrong. It would be wrong. And that's what happened. Drug prices are still largely skyrocketing. So Bernie Sanders, this is why Bernie Sanders, I think, is the best shot we have at beating Donald Trump. Now, you shouldn't really care about electability. You should care about policy over all else. Electability is this bullshit idea that people came up with to try to gaslight the left into abandoning left-wing politicians. But if you really wanted to have the conversation about electability, the reality is I think Bernie's our best chance to be Trump. Why? Because he clobbers him over the head with substance, and he doesn't take his bullshit. He's not going to play Trump's game with Trump. Trump can call Bernie crazy Bernie all he wants, and then Bernie will just fucking brush it off and go right back to clobbering over the head with truth and reality and substance and a plan to fix everything. All right, now we're going to cite some of Bernie's accomplishments here because the New York Times came after him. So the New York Times went after Bernie, and, um, you know, this is an argument that we've seen time and time again. It's not just the New York Times. Other outlets have done this, the same thing where they say... He's been in Congress, and he's been in the Senate for, like, forever. And what does he have to show for it, bro? Listen, he's, like, a hardcore lefty ideologue, and they can't get anything accomplished. The only way to get stuff accomplished is to be a centrist, because when you're a centrist, you could, like, give the right wing everything they want and then brag about how you achieve stuff. They didn't say that last part, but they do make the argument of, oh, he's a lefty ideologue, he never gets anything accomplished. So, you know, he's not serious. He's been in Washington, D.C. his whole life, and what does he have to show for it? That's an argument people actually make. Well, all the snarkiness aside, we're going to answer that question. Um, courtesy of one of Bernie's policy advisors, Warren Gunnels, here are some of Bernie's accomplishments. Number one, providing 9 million more Americans with primary health care. Hmm, that seems important. 2 million more with dental care and 860,000 more with mental health services through a $12.5 billion expansion in community health centers. Number two, raising the wages of 350,000 Amazon workers to at least $15 an hour. How did he do that one? Him and Rokana proposed the Stop Bezos Act, and then Bezos got scared as fuck, and then he said, okay, 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 I'm going to raise wages. Number three, 
increasing the wages of over 60,000 Disney workers to at least $15 an hour. Number four, restoring $320 million in pension benefits to 130,000 IBM workers. Number five, seven states and over 40 cities passed a $15 an hour minimum wage law because, you know, Bernie was out there leading the charge and fighting on this front, marching alongside, you know, um, protesters who are also fighting incredibly hard for this. Number six, passage of veterans legislation with John McCain providing $5 billion to hire more doctors and nurses at the VA. Number seven, passage of legislation ending our involvement in the Saudi-led war in Yemen. Number eight, passage of the first and only audit of the Federal Reserve in 2010. I actually think you worked with Ron Paul for that one. Number nine, passage of the National Affordable Housing Trust Fund Act. Number 10, preventing Social Security cuts to seniors and disabled veterans. That's an area where um, Joe Biden and Barack Obama were working on the opposite side, and they wanted to cut Social Security. Um, Where was I? Number 11, stopping the Postal Service from closing up to 15,000 post offices and over 100 mail processing plants ending Saturday um, mail and slashing over 100,000 jobs. Number 12, passing more roll call call amendments than anyone in a Republican Congress. That's why they called him the Amendment King, by the way. Number 13, passage of $3.2 billion in energy efficiency and renewable energy grants. Number 14, raising wages of federal contractors to at least $10.10 an hour in 2014. Number 15, banning the credit card interest rate bait and switch scam. Number 16, doubling funding for the low income home energy assistance program. Number 17, creating the Northeast Home Heating Oil Reserve. Number 18, stopping bailed out banks from replacing U.S. workers with low wage guest workers. Number 19, prohibiting the importation of goods made by forced or indentured child labor. Number 20, mandating free credit reports for all Americans. Now, I want to be clear about something. This is not a comprehensive list. This is just a partial list of the things that Bernie Sanders has accomplished. Other things that are incredibly important are also what he didn't do, okay? So, for example, he did not support the war in Iraq. On that alone, massive, massive credit, and it almost puts him above and beyond um, all the other Democratic candidates on that alone. Uh, He also did not support the TPP, despite many Democrats supporting it, and despite the Democratic president trying to shove it down uh, the Democratic caucus's throat. So that's another thing he didn't support. So just as important as the stuff he did accomplish and he did get through are the things that he didn't support, because Bernie Sanders was reliably on the proper side of every, you know, hot-button issue his entire career. When other politicians like Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden we're doing what was politically convenient at the moment, like being for endless wars, Bernie Sanders stood on principle. So this busts up the utter nonsense idea of, what do you mean, he's done nothing because he's a left ideologue. Listen, guys, bipartisanship and compromise is not inherently good. It's not inherently good to work with the right. It depends what you're working with them on. So, for example, many centrist Democrats and blue dog Democrats work with Republicans to deregulate Wall Street. They got legislation passed, but is that a good thing? No, it's terrible. It's horrendous. It's bad. It's going to bring us to another um, stock market crash and another great recession. So it's not like bipartisanship and compromise is inherently good. But if you were inclined to talk about bipartisanship and compromise as a good thing, well then, okay, Bernie Sanders is your guy. Because guess what? Bernie Sanders works with libertarian-leaning senators, uh, 
excuse me, libertarian leading, yeah, senators, but then also when he was in Congress, he would work with um, people who are now in the Freedom Caucus. I don't think the Freedom Caucus existed at the time, but he would work with them on ending wars. He would work with them on um, criminal justice reform. So Bernie Sanders is willing to work with the other side if it's towards positive ends, if it's not if it's towards negative shit, not if it's starting another war or deregulating Wall Street more. But he actually does have a record of bipartisanship, but he does bipartisanship when it makes sense. So that these are perfect examples of it here, man. You are not going to find another politician who's been this principled, this uncorrupted, and this intelligent with his strategy throughout his entire career. He worked with the right, with uh, Mike Lee to be specific, with stopping the U.S. support of the genocide in Yemen. Guess what? Donald Trump vetoed that. So you get the best of both worlds. You get somebody who's principled. You get somebody who has actual values that reflect the American people. You get somebody who has a coherent ideology. And also you get somebody who does work with the other side, but only when it makes sense. He's never going to work with the other side against his own values and against the values of the American people. That's unlike a lot of centrist Democrats who go along to get along and they work with Republicans to serve their corporate donors. That is not Bernie Sanders. So the New York Times can shove it. All these outlets that acted like he didn't get anything accomplished can shove it. They simply are dead wrong. Okay. So I have a reminder video for everybody here. If I'm not mistaken, we covered this once before. Um, it's possible it was a different talk that Bernie gave to uh, high school kids, but I'm pretty sure this was the talk that we covered. Um, this is in 2003, and he's talking about how he's a uniquely uncorrupted politician. So remember, this is well before any kind of movement to get money out of politics. This is well before, um, you know, the left becoming principled on certain ideas when it comes to raising money for your campaign. So, you know, we say no corporate PAC money, for example, no uh, billionaire money, no uh, bundling dinners where you rub elbows with asshole CEOs who are going to want you to do certain things to help them. This was before those ideas became, like, really clear and defined, and we had principles and, and we made politicians abide by it. This is well before Justice Democrats. This is before anybody was talking about this stuff. Look at what Bernie said in 2003 talking to high school students. But most of my funds do not come from PACs. Most of my funds, interestingly enough, and we, I think, are unique, or maybe not, maybe one or two other people in the Congress, most of my funding comes from small individual contributions. I do not take and never have taken and never will take one penny from any corporation because I don't represent their interest. But all over America... People send me, and in the state of Vermont, we receive, you know, whole lots of funding from people who say, Bernie, I can afford a $20 check or a $30 check or a $50 check or occasionally a couple of $100 checks. 
So almost uniquely in the Congress, my money comes from small contributions averaging about $33 a piece, but from huge numbers of people. Lots of people, 10, 15,000 people contributing 30 bucks a piece, you got $450,000. And then you get some money from unions and other, other groups. And that's how I put together my phone. Go ahead, try to find video of any other politician at that time doing that. Not going to find it. Not going to find it. He's talking about raising from only small dollar donors back in 2003. And actually, to be fair, it's not just that. He also takes money from unions. So technically, Bernie Sanders does take some PAC money, but it's never corporate PACs. It's, it's always, you know, a more benign PAC. Now, that's not to say you can't criticize union money in politics. I think it's perfectly fair to do that because sometimes they're on the wrong side of issues, you know, every now and then. They'll be, most of the time they're just representing workers, but sometimes they'll like, you know, be in favor of an oil pipeline, like a Keystone XL pipeline, and that goes against environmental interests, and you've got to balance lefty concerns there. Um, so it's not like that money is uh, totally no strings attached. So there is something to criticize there, but however, when you judge Bernie Sanders against all other politicians and you look at where they get their money from and you look at how they end up legislating, I think it's fair to say he is like the most uncorrupted of all the options and of all the candidates and of all the politicians. And he was voicing it even back then. And by the way, just so you know, this makes you very unpopular in Washington, D.C., because everybody else feels like, Oh, what what makes you think you're so special? Oh, you don't want to play the game like the rest of us? You know, what's wrong with you, with you and your purity tests, you and your, you know, moral compass? So it makes him an outsider. It makes it so that a lot of people don't like Bernie and won't talk to Bernie and won't work with Bernie, and they look down on Bernie because he, by his very existence, he kind of exposes the corrupt nature of the system. And the last thing these corrupt assholes in D.C. want to feel like is that they're corrupt, but they are. So, you know, it, it must have been a lonely life being as principled as uh, Bernie Sanders is in this giant cesspool of Washington, D.C. Um, but nonetheless, he's, he stuck by his guns, man. He absolutely did. So this is all stuff to keep in mind when it comes to the 2020 election. Donald Trump, when he ran in 2016, he pretended to be anti-establishment. He pretended like he was going to drain the swamp, and that ah, he's not going to serve Wall Street. And he, the forgotten men and women will never be forgotten again. Yeah. This is some of the arguments Trump used. But the person who actually represents that ideology, who actually wants to drain the swamp, who actually wants to represent the forgotten man and woman, that's Bernie. So you're not going to out anti-establishment Bernie. There's no way anybody could do that, which is why he's the strongest option against Trump by far and away. And uh, this video is a stark reminder of exactly who we're dealing with. Okay. cruising today. Jeez. Alright, let's do one more, then we'll take our first break. We are already on the Biden stories. 
So Joe Biden spoke to CNN, and he laid out his health care plan. And the best word for it is underwhelming. You versus the rest of the field on the economy. They're all going big. 70% tax rates, free college, re-architecture of the economy, a forgiving debt for college, which happens to be the biggest asset on the American government's balance sheet. You do not believe in those things. I don't believe in the way they're doing that. For example, I think there should be health care for everyone. I have a plan how to do that that's rational. It will cost a hell of a lot less. It will work. In terms of... Is incremental? No, it's not incremental. It's Would you bring back the individual mandate? Pardon me? Would you bring back the individual yes. mandate? Yes, I bring back the individual mandate. That will be popular? Well, it's not a yes now. It would be compared to what's being offered. And here's the deal, Chris. We're in a situation where if you provide an option for anybody who, in fact, wants to buy into Medicare for all, they can buy in. They buy in, and they can do it. But if they like their employer-based insurance, which a lot of unions broke their neck to get, a lot of people like their, they shouldn't have to give it up. The flip of that is if you don't go my way you have, and you go their way, you have to give up all of that. And what's going to happen when you have 300 million people landing on a health care plan? How long is that going to take? What's it going to do? It's amazing. He is genuinely stuck in the previous political era. These guys still think it's 1992 and still think Bill Clinton's new Democrat triangulation strategy is the way to win. What's most frustrating about Biden is that he goes on to say, and he repeats this all the time, it's one of his like slogans, is that we're America. There's not a damn thing we can't do. And as I've seen many people point out in response to that, well, accept Medicare for all. You're saying we can't do that. We definitely can't do that, but that's you speaking out of one side of your mouth, and out of the other side of your mouth, you talk about how we're America, we could do anything. So it's all like the hokey, corny, cheesy, faux patriotism, rah-rah bullshit, and then when it actually comes time to, to get some tangibles, to get down to brass tacks and get shit done, he's like, well, come on, don't be ridiculous. We can't do that. That's impossible. Every other developed country on earth managed to do it but the united states of america that we can't do it we can send a motherfucker to the goddamn moon we can do that but get people health care well i mean come on what are you talking about here don't be crazy and then of course there's so many lies in there he says he wants uh, you know i joe biden want health care for everyone well, no, the only way to actually get health care for everybody is to do a Medicare for all system. That's the only way to guarantee health care for everybody is a Medicare for all system. But he doesn't support it. Oh, I want health care for everyone. It'll cost much less and it'll work. Okay, but Medicare for all is the way to save the most money. I'll repeat that. Medicare for all is the way to save the most money. Uh, according to a University of Massachusetts Amherst study, Medicare for all would save $5 trillion over 10 years. Now, you know how they do that? They eliminate the unnecessary, rapacious, for-profit middleman. They eliminate that. So you don't have that, you know, CEO getting paid unnecessarily for sitting on his ass all day, getting millions of dollars and buying a second fucking yacht. You don't have unnecessary overhead costs like we have under our current system. So if you eliminate that rapacious middleman, then you can save a hell of a lot of money. When, when you look at the reimbursement rate, I believe like 
94 to 96% of the money that goes into Medicare goes towards actual care. It's only about 80% of the for-profit private insurance companies, and that's after the government forced them to do that through Obamacare. Because before that, it was like sometimes 60%, sometimes only 50% of the money that went to health insurance companies actually went to health care. And that's an abysmal system. That's a terrible system. So it's pretty easy to cut costs by about half if you go to a Medicare for All system. If you don't go to a Medicare for All system, you're never going to get those costs down that much. Um, and then he comes out and says it. Yeah, my plan is to bring back the individual mandate. So lovely, you're running on Obamacare. That's what you're running on. The thing that was just defeated in the last election, the thing that when implemented would always poll around 50%, the thing that perpetually gets the ire of the right and makes them put a hatchet in its back every eight seconds, that's the thing you're going to run on. The bullshit half measure, which we already have proven is unsustainable because it's already been obliterated 13 ways, that's the thing you're running on. So keeping the for-profit health insurance companies in control of the entire system and going back to the status quo. What a fucking bold message. I'm Joe Biden and I'm for the status quo. But it fits with what he said to those um, you know, rich donors behind closed doors. Quote, nothing would fundamentally change, Biden told his rich donor friends. friends. Nothing would fundamentally change. Bring back the individual mandate. It's beyond parity. Obamacare is a ripoff of Romneycare. Romneycare is a ripoff of the Heritage Foundation's um, right-wing response to single payer that came out of the 1990s. Okay, so basically, Joe Biden and the centrist Democrats—they are just fully Republican now. Their whole argument is like, no, let's do the Repub- old Republican plan. I'm going to stay by the old Republican plan, even though it perpetually polls around 50 percent. And it doesn't achieve universal care. I don't care. This half measures as far as I'll go. And he's going to start the negotiation by saying, oh, we could have a public option. It's like we're watching, it's like Groundhog's Day. and We're watching the same thing over and over. Well, that's how Obama started the negotiation against the Republicans when he got Obamacare through. It started by him saying public option or nothing. And then he caved all the way to their idea, the individual mandate system. So Joe Biden is doing the same thing over and over. And the final point is this. He makes the argument, well, unions like it. So, you know, we got to, what do you mean? Unions negotiated so hard for the current health plans that they have. I don't want to take that away from them. Except now, when you go talk to the unions, many of the unions are on the side of Medicare for all. Because when you take health care off the backs of businesses, That makes it a lot easier for businesses, too. That makes it a hell of a lot easier for businesses. When businesses have to worry about paying for people's health care, that's a pain in the ass, and that's a giant headache. And it also makes it much harder for people to go between jobs because they feel like they're married to a job because they got to keep their health care, and, you know, they can't have a gap in their coverage for whatever reason. I mean, he is a goddamn dinosaur. And he is running the most uninspiring campaign I've ever seen. And you cannot go in the direction of Joe Biden in 2020, because if you do, we're looking at a Hillary 2.0 type situation. He learned nothing from Hillary Clinton's failure, nothing at all. She ran the centrist campaign. She ran the status quo campaign. She ran the campaign of I'm the normal candidate. He's the crazy one. I'm the normal candidate. And she lost. 
Biden was asleep through that whole time period. Sleepy Joe Biden was dead asleep during that whole time period because now he's back and he's making the same damn arguments. Totally out of touch, and there's a reason he's tanking in the polls. Okay. Let me take a break, and then when we come back, Joe Biden spoke to CNN. And I'll give you further evidence that he's copying Hillary Clinton's strategy. So stay right there. We'll be right back with all that and more.
Mitch, we're back. We are back. We are back. Okay, more from this interview with Hansy Uncle Joseph. Here we go. So Joe Biden speaking to CNN here, and um, he continues to copy Hillary Clinton's failed 2016 campaign. Watch. You have made a big point of saying the threat here with the current administration is abroad. What exactly bothers you abroad? What bothers me abroad is, look, the idea that we can go it alone with no alliances for the next 20 or 30 years is a disaster. How are we going to deal with stateless terrorism without doing what I've been able to do with the president, put together coalitions of 50, 60 nations to take it on? I come out of a generation where we were trying to be the policemen of the world. We can't go in every place. We need allies. He is absolutely dissing them. He's embracing thugs. He's embracing Kim Jong-un, who is a thug. He's embracing Putin, who is a, who is a flat dictator. He's embracing people who, in fact, and he's stiff-arming our friends. He's threatening NATO to pull out of NATO. He, I mean, come on. He says he's gotten NATO to give in more oh, money for their defense because of his tactics. Oh, come on, man. And by the way, the idea that uh, um, NATO thinks... Let me put it this way. If he wins re-election, I promise you there'll be no NATO in four years. So with North Korea, the idea of reaching out, President Obama, Vice President Biden wanted to do more than that. The Republicans used to whack you on the head. You can't be nice to people who are enemies. Hasn't this president done what you wanted to do by reaching out to Kim? He did the exact opposite. He gave Kim everything that he wanted, legitimacy. He gave Kim, he ended our relationship as a practical matter with South Korea and Japan as a united front and let China off the hook. He put us in a position where we say, by the way, I love the man. I know what he's doing. He hadn't done a thing. He hadn't done a thing, Kim Jong-un. And what have we done? We've suspended exercises. Okay. All right, let's go through this. Um... Every single part of that was obnoxiously terrible and a recipe to lose an election. So he's complaining. At the end there, he brings up, they stopped our exercises. You know what he's talking about? Um, The United States likes to do provocative and offensive um, military games and military exercises right by North Korea's border. So, in other words, we like to constantly um, provoke them and poke them and remind them, like, hey, just so you know, at any time, if we really wanted to, we could take your ass out. There's nothing that makes the world less stable than that. You basically have, like, a child dictator constantly being reminded by the world's sole superpower who all the time topples governments, basically have him being reminded... Uh, you could be on borrowed time, so just to let you know, we might fucking take you out. Who, us? No big deal, bro. We're just doing war games on your fucking border. Imagine any other nation. Imagine Iran, Russia, whoever. You fill in the blank. Um, doing war games on the Mexican border. Like, the border between Mexico and the United States. Just doing military drills and doing fake invasions and shit and flying planes. How would we feel? We'd be like, oh, it's cool. They're just 
They're just doing ex- exercises. That's it. They're just doing exercises. No, we'd be like, whoa, this is a fucking act of war. This is a provocation. What are you, crazy? Get the fuck out of here. What are you doing? But us doing it to North Korea? To him, that's called Tuesday. Like, what do you mean? Yeah, of course we're threatening, you know, countries that didn't attack us, and we're doing it on regular basis. What do you mean? He's, go- he's attacking Trump because Trump um, stopped those exercises. By the way, I don't even know if he actually did. He said he was going to, but it could be like all the other things Trump says and then doesn't do. Oh, we're going to get out of Afghanistan, and then we're still in Afghanistan. Oh, we're going to get out of Syria, and then we're still in Syria. So I have no idea if he actually stopped them. But, by the way, if he did, good! Good! That makes the world a more safe place, you fucking jackass! North Korea is not going to attack us. You make it more likely that there is an attack by if you keep doing fucking military exercises on their border. Joe Biden acts under the assumption that we run the world and we can do whatever the fuck we want. We can violate international left and uh, international law left and right. And if you don't like it, you can fuck off. That's how Joe Biden acts. You think that's popular, Joe? You think that's what it is? Okay. Then he says, you know, oh, if Trump's elected, there will be no more NATO. <laughs> do you think a single mother in Milwaukee? This is going to resonate with her. You know, I mean, we should be talking about infrastructure here in this country. We should be talking about raising wages. We should be talking about cutting the price of medicine in half. We should be talking about Medicare for all, getting everybody covered. We should be talking about legalizing marijuana and releasing our nonviolent drug offenders. Joe Biden is fearmongering over the end of NATO. Joe, I got bad news for you. There's a decent chance the majority of the country doesn't even know what the fuck NATO is. And then we got the worst of the worst, man. He says um, he, he's fear-mongering about if Trump continues down this path, we'll have, quote, no alliances. So let me decode that from Washington, D.C. speak for you. Because what he's saying is Donald Trump is an isolationist. And that's not a good thing because we need to be engaged around the world. So we need to be the policemen of the world. We need to deal with the 50 or 60 nations that we worked with previously to end terrorism. So in other words, the fear-mongering is, oh, that Donnie, he's too non-interventionist. I'm telling you, man. It's like he looked at Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign and said, nailed it. (laughs) Nailed it. It was going that direction. Let's complain about how Donald Trump doesn't want to attack Syria. That'll work. Oh, God, you're so stupid. I'm so stupid. Um, And finally, he talks about this president, man. He's embracing thugs and dictators. That's crazy. You were the vice president. What do you think happened with Barack Obama and Saudi Arabia? What do you think happened? They went in there and Barack Obama said, Hey, you, you better stop what you're doing in Yemen. No, you rolled over for them. You said, Oh, oh, are you committing a genocide? <laughs> Here, have more weapons and more money. Oh, is that you, Netanyahu? Did you just do Operation Protective Edge where you took out 80% civilians, including 500 um, children? Well, that's okay. Take a break and reload, and we'll give you 
uh, more weapons. But the Trump is a bad guy because he's friends with thugs and dictators. So are you, you charlatan, you fraud, you con man. Friends with thugs and dictators. Notice, he only picks out the ones who are the official state enemies. Like, oh, Putin and Kim Jong-un, terrible. Do you have anything to say about our continued alliance with Saudi Arabia and how Trump gave them weapons and gave them money? Do you have anything to say about, you know, our relationship with Israel? You want to talk about a thug? You don't think Netanyahu's a thug? He's as thuggish as they get. He just jacks land whenever he wants to. It doesn't matter that it's not his. Or do you have nothing to say about that trade? He has nothing to say about them. Why? Because he says, oh, our friends are, and our allies, we're moving further away from them. Well, we need to if you want to do the second part of what you said, which is stop embracing thugs and dictators. So he's, I'm telling you, man, he's stuck in the 1990s. There's no escape for him. Uh, and finally, he says, he, he gave Kim Jong-un legitimacy. Yeah, but that's exactly what the Republicans said about you when you and Obama did the nuclear agreement with Iran. And the Republicans were totally full of shit then. You were right then. And now you're just copying their bullshit, except you're doing it with North Korea. Gave them legitimacy. I got news for you. He runs a country. <laughs> Gave them legitimacy. He literally runs a country. Pretty sure that's legit, whether or not you want to recognize it, whether or not you want to realize it. You might want to shove your head in the sand and scream, no, 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 I don't see it, I don't see it. But that's pretty goddamn legitimate. Gave them legitimacy. They, they recycle the Republican arguments and use them even though they're Democrats. What does that say about the, Joe Biden's core? What core is there? Nothing. You're fucking, you know, pantomiming. A, is that the right word, pantomiming? You're pantomiming arguments that you used to hear and acting like they're serious. No, the Republicans were assholes when you guys were in the White House, and now you're trying to be an asshole too, and you're trying to out-hawk Donald Trump. And by the way, that was full of lies. So there was one point where he said, um, Trump effectively ended our relationship with South Korea. What are you talking about? They, they love what we're doing with North Korea right now. Of all of Donald Trump's stuff on foreign policy, the one bright spot is North Korea. And by the way, that is on fucking fragile ground. I mean, that is on thin ice, baby. That any minute, Kim Jong-un so much as sneezes in the wrong direction, and that shit can crumble. So what you should be doing is resisting from the left. And what you should be saying is, Okay, no, we need even more negotiation and even more diplomacy, and let's iron out a deal right now. Let's get a deal right now. That's the resisting you should be doing, but no, you're resisting from the right. You're saying it ends our relationship with South Korea when South Korean uh, President Moon loves this shit. The Korean public, South Korean public, they're ecstatic that Trump just walked on North Korean soil for the first time. That brings us away from war. They live in the constant fear of war, and finally we're moving towards peace. And your ass is out there like, well, hold on now. I don't know about all this peace stuff. You're giving him legitimacy. Oh, God damn it. Terrible. Hillary Clinton 2.0, recycled right-wing garbage, trying to out-hawk Trump. Of all the stuff to attack Trump on when it comes to foreign policy, we're still in Iraq. We're still in Afghanistan. We're still in Syria. We're still doing drone strikes in eight different countries. We have a shadow war going on in Africa. 
We have neocon John Bolton and Mike Pompeo throwing darts at a fucking map and saying, invade there too. And your ass is like, I don't know about this. I don't think you're doing enough war, sir. Uh. Hands the Uncle Joseph. Okay. Now let's talk about his fundamentally incorrect view of politics. So Joe Biden has a view of politics that's stuck in the 1990s, um, or maybe even 1980s, depending on how you look at it. But this is a fundamentally incorrect view of politics. It's a naive view of politics, and it's... no way at all to get stuff done if you actually have policy beliefs and core values that you want to implement. So here he is laying it out, and then we'll come back and criticize. The last thing I remember talking about politically uh, with you, Bo, was, uh, you know, what is, what is the quality? You know, because he was asking me about, what, you know, what do you take from your father and this? What are you Bo Biden said to me, Nobody fights like my father. What does that mean to you, to fight harder than anybody else? It means two things. One, to fight without being personal, to fight and convince. The role of a president is to persuade, persuade, not just go out and fight. If they want someone to clench fist, bare-knuckle fight, closed hand, closed heart, they got one of those guys right now. That's not me. I have been pretty darn good at bringing people together. The whole idea of America is that when we're together, there's not a damn thing we can't do. And, and look, the most incredible response I always get for the last three years is when I talk about how optimistic am I about the future. People know it. They feel it. They know it. They understand it. And we can't stay in this state. What are we going to do? What are we going to do if we can't get along better? And part of it is persuasion. And people looking at you say, I know what he means, he'll stay with what he says, and he'll do what he says he's going to do. And I think that's part of leaving. Jesus Christ. So that is just full-bore Ronald Reaganism sprinkled in with a new Democrat triangulation Bill Clintonism. That's what, that's like the morning in America bullshit. So here's what's wrong with that. Let's go through it. First of all, it's a, it's a softball down the center of the plate from Chris Cuomo, who basically said to him, hey, you know, Bo Biden said that nobody fights like my father. How much of a fighter are you, Joe? I mean, that's like, here you go. I'm giving you exactly what you need. Knock this sucker out of the park. And Biden totally over his head, and he goes, Me, bro? No, no, no. I'm not a fighter. I'm a persuader. Oh, God, no. Oh, what have you done? And he actually says about Trump, oh, you want like a a bare-knuckle guy who's who's swinging haymakers? Well, you got that guy now. Oh, shut up, Joe. Shut up. God damn it. I'm more about persuasion. I'm not a fighter. Trump's a fighter. That's not me. Uh, uh. Hey, Joe, this is an anti-establishment populist, anti-corruption era. 
people do not like Washington, D.C. They hate Washington, D.C. In some polls, you have like herpes and cockroaches out polling Congress. Why do you think that is, Joe? Why do you think that is? You want to know why? Because nobody likes you guys. Nobody likes you. Nobody likes your elitist nonsense. So perhaps, you know, it was viewed as a positive by the American people that Trump was unhinged and hope. This guy might actually break stuff up and change stuff. All right, let's go in that direction. And what do you do? You feed into that narrative. You just gave Trump the exact narrative he wants. Oh, sleepy Joe Biden is, it represents uh, the status quo. And me, I'm a fighter. You know, I'm shaking things up. I'm making this country great again. So then he goes, he pivots from that nonsense. I'm a persuader, not a fighter. Really? How'd that work under Obama where you were trying to persuade people? Oh, that's right. You only were able to persuade Republicans to do Republican policies under Obama. That's how, that's how far your persuasion got you. I will agree to do all of your ideas. Is that okay? Okay. <laughs> uh, then he goes to the hokey, corny, cheesy... We're America. Do you not understand that? That means we're American. Let the bugle music play and wash over you. Take a patriotism bath, bitch. I mean, this is. This is the kind of corny nonsense. There's not a damn thing we can't do because we're America, except Medicare for all. Definitely can't do that because that's too hard and that's too expensive and that's too much of a rewiring of the economy. And I know every other developed nation has it, but don't worry about that. Forget that fact. Put that fact out of your mind. Don't think about it. Don't bring it up. Shut the fuck up. Never bring it up ever again. But other than that, there's not a damn thing we can't do except free college either. Free college, that's too hard. That's too extreme. I mean, you got $1.6 trillion in a student loan debt, and what I say is, fuck them, make the students pay it. You know what I'm saying? I care more about the banks than the students, but I usually don't say that part out loud. But anyway, so what we can't do, we can't do free college. But outside of that, there's not a damn thing America can do. Except end all the wars. We have to stay in Iraq. We have to stay in Afghanistan. So I just need you to pipe down and don't say too much about that. Because, you know, that's business as usual. That's us being the police of the world. That's that's what I know. I know. Listen, I know. I know. I know. Our infrastructure is crumbling. It gets a grade of D plus, according to the Society of Civil Engineers. But just trust me on this one. Just please just be quiet and just accept it for how it is. But outside of that, there's not a damn thing we can't do except free all the nonviolent drug offenders and legalize recreational marijuana. That I'm not really in favor of because I think that goes too far and I'm old school and I think that you should abide by the rules and sure I help write the crime bill. And But don't worry about that either because that's irrelevant to the larger conversation. But outside of all, there's not a damn thing we can do. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Joe, for your... See, what they try to do is substitute policy substance with Corny, hokey, cheesy, flowery rhetoric and platitudes and cliches. That's the trick. Instead of actually giving you tangibles and saying, hey, hey, here's what we're actually going to do, like Bernie, and I have a record proving this. We're going to get Medicare for all. We're going to get free college. We're going to get a living wage. We're going to end the wars. Instead of doing all that, he says, okay, forget all the policy stuff. I'm just going to say nice words, and then you need to fill in the blank in your own mind. We're America. There's not a damn thing we can't do. And then finally, he has the nerve to say, at the end of this, 
people are optimistic. When I talk to them, they get it. They get people are optimistic. You know, in my experience, it's the exact opposite. People are like, holy shit. It looks like the climate is changing in a way that's irreversible, and we ain't doing Dickie McGee's acts to try to fix it. People aren't optimistic. They're scared. And they're beaten down by the corrupt, elitist, disgusting politics in Washington, D.C. that never gives them a break. So I can't tell you how bad his strategy is. Joe Biden is stuck in the 1980s and the 1990s. He took a dash of Reaganism with the optimistic morning in America bullshit, and he mixed it with the new Democrat uh, Clintonism, the triangulation, um, the third way politics, sprinkled that in. And then, you know, he walks out there and acts like he's nailing it. But that's the exact wrong strategy. And it's copying Hillary Clinton 2016 and it will fizzle out, and God forbid, you know, he gets the nomination. If he actually gets the nomination and he's up against Trump, that is terrifying. All right, let's go to flailing Joe Biden, who finally agreed or finally apologize, excuse me, for praising um, segregationists. Actually, I just fucked up my, uh, whatchamacallit, my graphic. So give me a second. Let me fix this here. This is the last one on flailing Joe Biden. And then I have some other stuff for you as well. So Joe Biden finally apologized for praising segregationists and bragging about working with them on the issue of segregation, mind you. Um, But this, you have to understand, is coming after he doubled down. So he bragged about working with segregationists and said, I can get things done, like being, uh, you know, against busing desegregation. he said that there was a backlash. He doubled down, said his record was being taken out of context. He doubled down again, so that's a triple down. Uh, and then finally now, after he sees the polls, he does this. Was I wrong a few weeks ago to somehow give the impression to people that I was praising those men who I successfully opposed time and again? But yes, I was. I regret it. And I'm sorry for any of the pain or misconception that may have caused anybody. Let me explain something to everybody. When you have no core, when you have no values and real beliefs, this is what happens. You end up flailing. I mean, seriously, think about this. In the year 2019, he bragged about working with segregationists. Okay, by the way, he literally worked with segregationists on um, fighting against busing desegregation. Brags about that. When he gets called out, he says, no, no, no. My position was I was only against busing done by the Department of Education. Yeah, that's being against busing desegregation. 
the way to end the busing desegregation was to have the Department of Education step in. Like, he's so dumb, he might not even realize he made a literal segregationist argument. They, they, ne they never said, like, oh, by the way, we think blacks are inferior and they should be relegated to second-class citizenship. They never said that because that's too impolitic and impolite. So what do you do? You cloak it. And you cloak it in, no, 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 this has nothing to do with the race. It's state rights. So I think states should have the right to be segregationists and to separate the races. What? What? What's the problem? I'm not racist. I just believe in states' rights. That was the dodge. So that's the same argument here. They're going, oh, well, listen, we're, we want to segregate our own schools. Get the federal government out of here. The federal government said, no, you're going to desegregate. And if you don't desegregate, we're going to make you. We're going to have a busing program where we desegregate. And Joe Biden's like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm against that forced desegregation. Classic segregationist argument. So he made it. He doubled down, said he was being taken out of context, tripled down, and now he comes out and says, whoa, 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 whoa. Why? Because he tanked in the polls. After that debate performance, he tanked at least 10 points. Some polls have him tanking more than 10 points. So this is him and his campaign going, oh, shit, we really said the wrong thing. Perhaps we shouldn't have praised segregationists to a party that is, makes up the overwhelming majority of black people in America. So uh, I guess we have to do it now. Our arm is twisted. We have to go out there and apologize. Joe Biden has to go out there and apologize. He's doing it as a matter of political necessity to save his ass. He doesn't believe anything. He doesn't believe shit. How can I press the right buttons and say the right things to get you to like me enough to vote for me so I can become president? That's what I, Joe Biden, care about. Now compare that with Bernie Sanders. I genuinely get the sense from Bernie he doesn't even really want to be doing this. He doesn't. There were reports that in 2015, he begged Elizabeth Warren to run. and said, please, 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 please. I need you to run. I don't want to do it. We need somebody representing a left-wing vision. Now, she said no, so he ended up running. And he came damn close to winning, which I think is why he's doing it this time, because he knows the way to get the real transformative uh, you know, policy platform implemented is for him to do it himself because there are differences between, between him and Elizabeth Warren. She's close to him ideologically, but not fully there. So it, I get the sense from Bernie, he doesn't even really want to be doing this, but he feels like we need to fix everything, and he knows how to fix everything, so he's like, okay, here I go. So that's Bernie. Fine, I'll shoulder the burden, even though I don't really want to do this, because it seems like a pain in the ass, but fine, here I go. Biden is just about, like, all I want is to be president. Fuck everything in between. Oh, I got to fucking kiss people's asses and, and tell them what they want to hear and, ugh, gross. Fine, I'll do it. Like, to him, it's more about all I care about is being president. To Bernie, it's I don't even care about the being president thing. I just feel like I have to do it because we got to fix the country. So the ideas and the policies come first. And, in fact, that's all there is for Bernie. Couldn't get more different people. One of them is all about narcissism, is all about self-aggrandizement, just wants the title. The other one doesn't care about any of that stuff. All they care about is we got to fix the country and we got to do the right thing. It's night and day, man. It's night and day. The reality is Joe Biden, of course, should have never praised segregationists to begin with. After he praised segregationists, he should have shut the fuck up and never doubled down. After he doubled down, he should have shut the fuck up and never tripled down. After he tripled down, he should have never came out and apologized. <laughs> so every step of the way, wrong, 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 wrong. But this is Hansy Uncle Joseph. He knows no different. 
You want to talk about gaff-prone. He's as gaff-prone as they, as they come. I mean, you would have to be a genuine dipshit to not realize that in 2019 you don't brag about working with segregationists to a party that has a tremendous number of black Americans. I mean, how – forget the black Americans thing. White Americans are going to go, ooh, <laughs> white American Democrats across the board. I don't care if they're centrist. I don't care if they're left. They'll be like, what are you doing? <laughs> political instincts that are beyond terrible. So cannot be Biden. Do not let it be Biden. We got to fight for Bernie because this guy is a dumpster fire. Okay, next. Okay. The U.S. women's soccer team won the World Cup, and then this happened. So I have a great video for you. You're going to enjoy this. So the U.S. women's soccer team has been in the news quite a bit recently. They've... um, they kind of stood up to Trump and said, we don't respect him, we don't like him, fuck him. Um, and then there was backlash, because of course there was. And they're just like, yeah, I don't care, fuck him. <laughs> and then, um, so they won the World Cup, which is awesome. Credit to them. Man, I, that winning feeling. As a Knicks fan, I genuinely might not get that winning feeling for the NBA in my entire life. Last time they were really good, I was a child. There's, they might not win a championship before I die, which is just, it pains me. It pains me to know it. But, yeah, I'm a big uh, Knicks fan, and so I don't really get that feeling with them. I'm a big Tiger Woods fan, and he's given me that winning feeling because he always wins even on a broken leg when he has no back and all that stuff. Having the U.S. women's soccer team win, that actually is super cool. Now, I'm not a big soccer fan at all, um, but it's still awesome that the U.S. won the World Cup. I mean, that's so cool. But anyway, I digress from that. After the U.S. won the World Cup, Fox News was reporting on this from a bar in France. I think France is where they had the World Cup. And here's what happened. Oh, come on, man. I love how that dude tried to handle it. He's like, oh, what did they say? Uh, uh, mm, we're, we're in a sports bar. I know I just said that, but I'm saying it again. I hope you can't hear what's behind me. Hilarious. Um, naturally, right-wing Twitter totally melted down over this. Listen, guys, I thought you were the anti-snowflake people. I thought you were like, whatever, bro. Get over your feelings, all right? I don't care about your feelings. There's more important things to care about. You understand? We're tough. That's what we are. <laughs> they screamed fuck Trump in a bar in France. <laughs> First of all, it's like 10 people. <laughs> Reel it in. Who gives a shit? Second of all, they're probably drunk and they, 
don't like Trump. Who cares? Who gives a shit? Who cares, man? This is like the ultimate of slow, snowflakiness is to say, you know, I'm super offended and butthurt by people screaming fuck Trump in a bar in France after the U.S. wins the World Cup. I mean, what did, let me, seriously, let me ask these people. What did you expect? Fans of women's soccer to be the demographic, to be hardcore right wing? This ain't NASCAR, bitch. <laughs> this is not NASCAR. You're going to have people who lean left. That's the demographics that make up the fans of the U.S. women's soccer team, overwhelmingly. I'm sure there are some Republicans, but statistically it's going to be overwhelmingly people who are on the left. So you know what I filed this under? Whoop-de-doo. Whoop-de-freaking-doo. I don't care. I don't care. Now, people would say, oh, yeah, if it was under Obama, he said the opposite. No, I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't. You want to know why? Because who gives a shit? Who cares? I'm sure some NASCAR thing in the past, maybe they did say, fuck Obama. I don't know. The idea that, you know, that would merit me, like, throwing a tantrum and melting like a snowflake and saying, like, oh, got you, he's our president. It's the opposite. If anything, yeah, there are presidents, so of course you should expect this kind of a reaction in some forums. Yeah, they're the president. They're like the most ripe person for criticism. So how do you not expect this? You should expect it on both ends of the spectrum. You should expect the, you know, some people drooling all over themselves with praise and adoration for him, and you should expect people who are like, fuck him, I don't like him. It's par for the course. You're the most powerful person in the world. You're going to get criticism. You're going to get people who don't like you. And for you to care about it being from a bunch of random people at a bar in France, who gives a shit? Who cares? But I will say, the final point I will make is this. That doesn't mean they're heroes, because, you know, you see many people who are Democrats who are like, oh, yes, so brave of you to say fuck Trump when you're drunk. Yeah, yeah. They're not heroes. They're just regular people. I really don't care either direction about this. But do I agree with the sentiment behind it? Of course I do. By the way, I think one of the reasons they did it is because they knew it was Fox News in the bar, for whatever reason. Maybe it said it on the camera, or the guy had told them, oh, I'm a Fox News reporter. And so, I mean, that is like masterfully trolling. And usually the idea uh, in, you know, nowadays is that, oh, the right is better at trolling than the left is. Well, the left is catching up. Because that's what that is. They learned, oh, is this a Fox News reporter? Oh, shit, when they start talking, maybe we should start chanting, fuck Trump. And they were fishing for that reaction that they got. Laura Ingram was, like, crying on Twitter. Shut up. Who cares? Who cares? But that's what they're looking for. They're looking for that backlash. They're looking for that reaction from the right. They're looking for that, how could you stop President Right, which is why... They're allowed to be criticized, and that's what I like to file under the free speech category. I hear the right cares about that, so here we go.
Okay. I fucking cruise today, dog. I only have two more stories left. Just so everybody knows, I'm uh, I don't I'm not sure if it's live or not, but I'm gonna be on uh, Anna Kasparian's show later today. So it's actually probably a good thing that we'll wrap up here a little bit early. Um, but yeah, it's, I'll be on her YouTube uh, TV show, No Filter. Will probably just be a 10 minute, 12 minute conversation. Not sure what she wants to discuss yet, but I'll figure out pretty soon. Yep, nothing yet from her. Anyway, sorry, I'm thinking out loud. I'll be on Anna Kasparian's show later today, just so everybody knows. Anyway, um, let's talk about Justin Amash. So Congressman Justin Amash decided to leave the Republican Party. He wrote an op-ed on Independence Day where he said, I'm declaring my independence. And um, here he is discussing that with Tap Jaker. The president last sat on you on Twitter Thursday after your announcement that you were leaving the Republican Party saying, quote, great news for the Republican Party is one of the dumbest and most disloyal men in Congress is, quote, quitting the party, no collusion, no obstruction, Knew he couldn't get the nomination to run again in the great state of Michigan, already being challenged for a seat, a total loser. I wanted to give you an opportunity to respond. I mean, I don't have a response to it. It's, it's what the president does. It's what he says. Um, and I think most people understand that's not how people are supposed to talk uh, about each other to each other. And uh, I think he's really identified what I talked about in my op-ed, which is um, he thinks that people owe loyalty to him. But people are, people are elected to Congress uh, with an oath to support and defend the Constitution, not an oath to support and defend one person, the president, uh, who happens to be from your own party. Do you think that kind of attack, personal, personal nasty, name-calling, um, do you think fearing that kind of attack is why more of your Republican colleagues don't speak out when they see things they don't like from the president? Yeah, it's a big part of it. Uh, they're afraid they'll be attacked. They're afraid that people uh, back home who are uh, listening to certain uh, forms of media will say, well, uh, the president's right, this guy is a terrible person, and we need to go after him. So it, it's a combination of things. Uh, I don't think a lot of the partisan discord and the rest started with President Trump. It's been going on for years, and it's gotten worse in recent years. But he's helping to fuel it, and he's making it worse, and he's making it more difficult for people to be independent in Congress. You stand to lose some political power by leaving the Republican Party. The vice chair of the Republican Con Conference, Congressman Mark Walker, uh, tweeted, quote, Amash left the Freedom Caucus. Now he's leaving the GOP. The House GOP never left Justin Amash. We simply ran out of space for his ego. However, we should make sure he leaves the Republican Conference and his committee. What would you say to a, a supporter or a constituent who says, by leaving the party, you are... Uh, hurting your congressional district because you no longer are going to have potentially. I mean, do you, you anticipate you're going to be kicked off the oversight committee? Uh, I anticipate that I may be kicked off, um, and uh, and that's okay. I understand the consequences of doing what I'm doing. Uh, at the end of the day, though, I've done this for several years. I've worked within the Republican Party. I've tried to make changes from within. My colleagues have tried to make changes from within, 
it hasn't worked. It's not working for anyone. I'm not the only one trying. I have colleagues who are trying every day and who are frustrated, but they are not speaking out the same way. Um, I hope they will speak out. But it's time to try something different. It's time to be a, a committed, independent representative for my district so that everyone back home knows where I stand. Because right now when you go back home, you hear uh, Republicans who don't trust you because you're not aligned with the president. You hear Democrats who don't trust you because you're a Republican. And most of the people in my district do trust me. They, they respect me. They support me. And I want those people to know that I'm there for them. I'm there to represent every single person in the community. So here's why I find this really interesting. He actually doesn't gain anything from this. He doesn't gain anything at all. So he's leaving the Republican Party. He's becoming an independent. That makes it a lot harder, even though he's a congressman and he's an incumbent. That does make it a lot harder that he'll get reelected. And also, he might lose his committee assignments, and then he has no political home. So he's not going to caucus with the Democrats because he doesn't agree with the Democrats on a lot of stuff. Um, the Republicans might say you can't caucus with us because he's in favor of impeaching Donald Trump, and he has many disagreements because he's a very like libertarian-leaning Republican. Um, and he doesn't, like, fall in line a lot. And one of the key characteristics of most of the Republicans in D.C., except, like, Rand Paul and a handful of others, is that they're really authoritarian, and they'll fall in line behind, like, whatever McConnell says. Um, so the reason why this is really noteworthy is that this is not – like, some people are spinning it as, oh, yeah, he, like, the Republicans just said, oh, he cares about his ego. There's no more room for his ego here. Except he doesn't gain anything from this. You know, you could say, oh, well, he gets one round of press. So what? That's nothing. He'll get one round of press and then, you know, it kind of goes right back into oblivion. And the Democrats still won't really get along with him because on so many policy issues, he's not in agreement with the Democrats. So they probably wouldn't vote for him. And the Republicans now don't like him because he's for impeaching Trump. And even though I, I don't even necessarily agree with him on impeachment, but I do think it's kind of bold that, he was willing to say, like, yeah, I'm for that, and I'm willing to risk my political future to just let everybody know, here's what I think and here's what my beliefs are. So in a weird way, I give him a lot of credit. But also, I think we should keep our eye on what happens in the future with Justin Amash because ultimately this may end up being super interesting because he was elected as a Republican, and then when he runs for re-election, he's going to run as an independent. So if he gets reelected as an independent, this actually may be kind of a path forward for those of us who, you know, would more or less caucus with one party, but we don't like the party overall. Like, I, if this works, so let's say he ends up getting reelected as an independent, which is now harder. If he stayed a Republican, he'd be much more likely to get reelected. So let's say, but let's say he gets reelected as an independent. Then I would think it actually it does make sense for some Democrats to, you know, basically run as a Democrat, maybe spend a couple terms as a Democrat, and then say, you know what, I'm, I'm no longer going to be a Democrat, and here are my reasons for leaving the Democratic Party, whatever it may be, to beholden to, uh, to corporate interests, and I don't fall in line with them, with their priorities, whatever it may be. They're too hawkish on foreign policy, and so now I'm becoming an independent. Like, that would be a very, if this becomes a trend, that would be awesome. Because then we would take a Washington, D.C. from being, you know, what is there, one independent in the Senate, Bernie, 
maybe two, and then in, in Congress, one or two? Like, wouldn't it be something if all of a sudden, like, 25% of Congress and the Senate became independent? But this might be the roadmap, is my point, because, you know, history shows you're not going to win as a third-party option. You're not going to win as an independent running for president. Like Ross Perot tried, he did better than anybody had ever done, and he still had, I think, no electoral votes. He had, like, what was it, 9% or so of the uh, popular vote? Might have even been more than that, but he had no electoral votes. So for president, it's too hard. But if you're in Congress, the trick may be, hey, run as a Democrat or run as a Republican, maybe get elected again as a Democrat or Republican, get that name recognition up, and then say, hey, I'm leaving the party, but here's what I believe, and then try to win as an independent. That is a path forward. That does make sense. Um, so we'll see. But he, does, he did make it quite a bit harder that he'll get reelected by doing this um, because he really has no natural constituency in, in a partisan era in many ways. So we'll see what happens. But this is interesting, and I do give him credit for at least being unique, at least being different and sticking his neck out there and doing something where it's not like too many political upsides here. It's more of a risk for him. But I think he actually did it out of his conscience. And even if I may not have agreed with his reasoning behind it, still, that's hell of a, lot, a hell of a lot more than you'd see from most of the people in Washington, D.C. Very rarely, every now and then, we get these people who are willing to just shake it up and say, no, I'm not going to be a lemming and just go along with everybody. And uh, that's respectable. And also, just final thing I should say here is, Trump can't help himself. Like, he really does have such a fragile ego that he thinks, like, he tweeted about this. Like, who cares, Don? Who cares? Like, what did you expect? Everybody was going to fall in line behind you? And the reality is, he did expect that. He did expect that. And he's not totally wrong either, because very rarely do they step out of line. And you got a lot of insight into how the Republican Party uh, functions, because they're scared. They're scared of Trump. A lot of the run-of-the-mill Demo- uh, or Republican congressmen and senators, they are worried about Trump going after them publicly and then ruining their political careers, to which I say, I think that Bernie Sanders and real lefty leaders need to take note of that. Take note of that, because if that's what it takes to make people fall in line to get the right policies passed, like Medicare for All, for example, you got to use every advantage you can get. Use that bully pulpit effectively and efficiently. And that's something that Trump, even though we all hate him, you got to give him credit for, man, because that actually gets shit done and gets people to understand who the boss is and who sets the agenda. Now, it turns out Trump's also an idiot. But isn't that something that you have a member of Congress who's a Republican who left the party and he's saying they're all like scared to death of him. They all fall in line. And this notion of like, you know, tough guy Republicans, yeah, I'm politically incorrect. I say what I think. And it's like, "Ah, daddy might come after me in a tweet. I must fall in line and do what he wants. That's basically what we just learned. And that is an important piece of knowledge.
Okay, let's talk about Andrew Yang and how he shit the bed. Because he shit the bed. Sorry, Andrew, got to do it to you. So Andrew Yang has had a little bit of a rough go of it lately. Now, um, you know, his candidacy surged out of the gate, to be honest with you. And, you know, he's an entrepreneur. Uh, Old school establishment types would have told you there's no way this guy's going to get any traction. But, I mean, they were simply flat out wrong. He went on Joe Rogan's uh, podcast and he spoke about UBI, or as he calls it, the Freedom Dividend. And a lot of people liked what he had to say. And he's definitely a thoughtful guy. He's way more libertarian-leaning than I am. Um, but nonetheless, there is a you know, constituency for that, a market for that, and um, he tapped into it, that's for sure. Now, he had a rough debate night. He says, hey, my mic was turned off, and uh, Marianne Williamson has come out and said, hey, at different times in the debate, my mic was turned off too. So I, I don't know why well, I say I don't know why they, they do that, but I do know why they do that, NBC um, could have tried to steer the discussion in a direction they wanted to. And what they did is try to, I guess, <clears throat> quiet down the candidates who they viewed as fringe candidates who are not in the top tier candidates. And that is unacceptable. So assuming that that's true, you know, that is unacceptable that they did that. But even so, Andrew Yang did not perform well in the debate the few times he did talk. And I, it brings me no pleasure to say that because I predicted beforehand that he was going to do really well in the debate and so well that he'd get a measurable bump in the polls. Boy, was I wrong. I was dead wrong on that. So, you know, hey, you get some right, you get some wrong. This is one I got wrong. Um, but we'll see. I think he's has enough individual donors to get into the second debate, so we'll see if he can redeem himself. But I got to cover this story because, it, you know, came, I came across it on Twitter and I can't get it out of my head and I have to share it with you. So here he is. Andrew Yang was at a campaign event in Iowa. And it was televised on C-SPAN. And he was asked about the issue of Israel. He did not do too well with this answer. Uh, In terms of the money we're giving to an ally like Israel, um, my first instinct would be like, why would we reduce it? Uh, You know, uh, and so so certainly if I communicated something else, like uh, that's not the the idea at all. there are certain relationships we have that, to me, we need to rebuild and strengthen. And I would suggest that our relationship with Israel uh, is one. And what about the Arabs? Um, you know, you'd have to look at it in a case-by-case and say, like, what's happening in terms of our, our bilateral relationship with a particular party. Um, but my, my zeal is to try and build strong alliances and partnerships. If someone's been working with us for a long time, they should feel like they're being rewarded for that, frankly. And then if someone has an interest in working with us, we should uh, be open to rewarding that too. Um, but for each country, you know, like you have to look at what's going on um, at that time and what the lead-in has been. So when it comes to land in Israel that's uh, being taken, even though it was granted to certain Palestinian families by the UN, uh, how do you feel about uh, constricting Israel almost to prevent that from happening? And uh, constricting uh, political influence by American leaders in Israel. I'm not sure I understand the question, but I'll answer it more generally, um, which is like my, my my stance on this is that it's going to be hard for the United States to constrict like uh, an ally or really just about any 
of its partners uh, in a decision that they feel is central to them, and I don't think that's our priority. It's not that we're somehow giving people aid so that we can then twist their arm about things that, uh, you know, that they find important. Wow. Wow, that was bad, Andrew. Wow. That was a little bit left-fieldy, not going to lie. I was not expecting that. Now, to be fair to him, all the candidates are relatively bad on Israel, but there are degrees. And Bernie, I think, is by far the best on the issue of Israel because he's repeatedly criticized the Netanyahu government. He was you know, telling them uh, that Operation Protective Edge, Protective Edge, was terrible and they were killing civilians. And um, he is much harsher in his rhetoric towards the government than anybody else, the Israeli government, than anybody else. But Andrew Yang, good googly moogly, you went straight like you. Your answer is basically an answer that could have been given by like Kamala Harris or Joe Biden. That's what you just did. What are you doing? What are you doing? He says, "Oh, we can't really constrict an ally and try to force them to do stuff, um, you know, by using the aid that we give them and like holding over their head. Why not? Why not? You know, George H. W. Bush actually did that. That flaming lefty." I mean, of course we can. We absolutely can. We give them so many weapons and so much money. And what? We can't say, hey, by the way, there's strings attached to this, and here's one of the things you can't do. You can't keep violating international law. You can't keep doing land grabs. You can't keep building illegal settlements. You can't keep cutting the grass, as they call it, and massacring civilians in Gaza. Oh, you would like to keep our uh, relationship strong? Well, then you have to actually follow international law, and you have to actually treat Palestinians with decency. How about that? No, not according to Andrew Yang. According to Andrew Yang, oh, come on, we can't do that. They're our allies. So what? Saudi Arabia is our ally too. Should we just sit idly by as they do a genocide in Yemen? Or should we help them as they do a genocide in Yemen? Because that's what we're doing. It, would your reaction be the same? Because, hey, man, they're an ally. Relax. They're an ally. Come on, Andrew. What are you doing, man? Uh, and then he actually said... At the beginning, when he was asked about the, um, you know, the subsidies we give them, well, why would we reduce it? Why would we reduce it? Well, I don't know. Let's start with they have universal health care in Israel. We don't have universal health care here. Our infrastructure gets a grade of D plus, and we can maybe use that money here. We have 7 million people who lost their health insurance under Trump, a total of like 30 to 40 million Americans who don't have health insurance. Um, we have a zillion things we could spend that money on here. And you're saying, why would we reduce our aid to Israel, the billions of dollars? Why would we reduce it? Also, maybe to stop their illegal settlement building and land grabs. Maybe that. I mean, that is such a terrible answer. You want to talk about a blind spot on foreign policy. Again, listen, I don't – he's more libertarian than I am with his economic policy. Now, that's okay. I mean, that's who he is. He just, he's just not – in agreement with me. But it is what it is. If you're more libertarian-leaning, okay, then you can look at somebody like Andrew Yang. But on foreign policy, that is like as big of a blind spot as I've ever seen on the issue of Israel. And it's a terrible answer. It's an abysmal answer. And that in no way, shape, or form fits with this model of how he's constructed himself as like, oh, I'm an anti-establishment guy as well. I'm from that anti-establishment wing of the Democratic Party. That is as pro-establishment and answers you could possibly give, and it was horrendous.
All right, I'm going to do uh, one more story here, just an add-on, because I might, I might as well bring this up. It's kind of breaking news. It came out last night. I didn't prep an official story, but let's do it. So Tom Steyer apparently is being reported now that he will run for president. Um, this is bizarre to say the least because we reported not too long ago that he decided the opposite. He said, no, 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 I'm not going to run for president. And I think I gave him credit in that segment because I thought maybe he realized, like, I have no chance and um, this would be silly and I'd be lighting money on fire. But he is a billionaire and he has the money to burn. And so he announced he is going to run for president. And he changed his mind. My guess is he probably looked at that first debate and said, I don't like anybody and I'm going to swoop in and, like, be the hero. But here's the problem, Tom. You're going nowhere, dog. <laughs> You're going nowhere. Like, how could you possibly, at a time when there's over, what, 20 candidates who are in the race, and most of them are polling at, like, 0% or 1%, you want to jump in there at this late date, starting way behind everybody else, and what do you think is going to happen? What are you offering that's so unique and so different from everybody else? And the answer is, oh, he's, he's the impeachment guy. He literally spent millions of dollars doing this ad campaign about how we have to impeach Trump. But that is like the epitome of what I call faux resistance, because it's resisting without resisting, because it's not going to happen. You're not going to succeed on that front. So if anything, you're just guaranteed to give Trump a bump in the polls, which materially helps him and makes it more likely he gets reelected. So your whole grand idea as to why you think you're so great and why you think you're the candidate for the job is to do something that unquestionably will end up helping Trump. That makes you more of a Trump ally than a Trump opponent, whether or not you realize it. I don't doubt his sincerity that he's against Trump, but effectively you will end up helping him if you go down the road that it looks like he wants to go down. So, I mean, I guess that's what he's going to do. He's going to jump in the race, and he's going to, you know, he's going to argue, like, I'm the impeachment guy, and this is my main issue. Like, you know how Jay Inslee is running mostly on climate change? That's his thing. Tulsi Gabbard's main issue is, uh, is war and basically fighting back against the military-industrial complex. There are a lot of candidates who put certain things front and center, and I guess he's going to do that with impeachment. But it's just embarrassing that you have, like, another out-of-touch mega rich old white dude who thinks like I'm gonna be the savior yes heap love and adoration on me it's funny because all these people think it's all wide open because Donald Trump is president and but no just because Trump is president doesn't mean it's a guarantee that he's gonna lose in 2020 in fact we just covered a poll earlier in the show where 47 percent of the country views him favorably right now so it ain't no damn layup election, but that's why these guys are getting in there with their giant egos, like Eric Swalwell. He thinks like, oh, Trump is somebody I could definitely beat. That's why I'm going to run. Oh, no, I have 0% in the polls. They're going to have a rude awakening, man. At a time when more people should be dropping out, Tom Steyer is jumping in. Steyer Steyer? I don't know how the fuck to say his name. I don't care. I don't even want to learn his name. I don't want to talk about the guy ever again, but unfortunately now we have to. Because um, 
he's like the king of Mick resistance. And he's just trying to make a name for himself even more now. Can you imagine being a billionaire and this is what you want to light your money on fire for? An election where you have a 0% chance of actually getting through the primary. Really? That's what you want to do? I mean, it's, it's embarrassing, man. It really is. All that money, bro. Why don't you just, you know, go out there and pay for health care for a million people? I don't know. You, there's a lot of stuff you use that for. End world hunger. Whatever it may be. Homeless shelters all across the United States. And if you did that, people would actually really respect you and like you. But he's going to take that money. He's going to light it on fire. He's going to run more useless ads about impeaching Donald Trump. And now he's going to hop in the presidential race and embarrass himself. Listen, I just want to be clear. This guy is not Howard Schultz, and he's not John Hickenlooper. Howard Schultz and John Hickenlooper are just embarrassingly bad and wrong, and they're super-duper centrist. Tom Steyer will pretend like he's a lefty and will be way to the left of those guys, but ultimately he's going to fall short because who knows if he really means it, who knows if he really believes it, and again, his main issue is impeachment, so it shows there's a little bit of mick resistance in him, so we'll see what ends up happening, but... As more people should be dropping out, this goofball is jumping in. The egos on these presidential candidates, when they see a field of like 25 people, they're like, I should jump in there. It's immeasurably large and embarrassing. Okay. And we are done, baby. That's the show. Um, I will be on Anna Kasparian's um, YouTube show. YouTube TV show later today. It'll probably, I don't know when it'll hit uh, YouTube, maybe tonight or tomorrow or whatever. But anyway, um, love y'all. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. Check me out on her show. I'm out. Peace.